0: Well, good morning. Uh, if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn to Galatians chapter 1. This past Wednesday, uh, Lacey and I experienced something of a parenting fail. It wasn't a big deal, but at Cross Point Preschool, they had Wacky Wednesday during Dr. Seuss week, and we sent Tripp in his wackiest attire. Unfortunately, the other three- and four-year-olds in this class did not bring the same energy. Now, I brought a picture of this, and I don't know how well you're going to be able to see it, but I want to show you this. So you can see Trip is over to the side, a couple feet away from the rest of the group. And you can see the other kids, I mean, they went, they went moderately wacky. They, they mixed stripes and plaids Together. One kid's wearing a Batman mask, one girl's wearing a mermaid tail. So they didn't do anything really crazy. And then you have Trip over here in the corner. He's wearing swim trunks, he's got bunny ears on his head, he's got sunglasses with the lenses poked out. He looks like an insane person. And he's a little bit separated from the rest of the group. And honestly, when I saw this picture, I was a little bit embarrassed by the whole episode, I just, I was like, Lacey, how did we, how did we let this happen to our son? How did we set him up for such failure on Wacky Wednesday? Why did we let him be so wacky? But for his part, Tripp did not care at all. In fact, he had a great day. He was completely oblivious to how much he stuck out like a sore thumb from the rest of the crowd. Now, I tell you this because the Apostle Paul has always struck me as a guy who also genuinely does not care what others think about him. As a matter of fact, in in verse 10 of Galatians chapter 1, he says exactly that. He says, if I were trying to please man, I wouldn't be his servant. Of Jesus Christ. Paul's sole focus was being faithful to God, being pleasing to God. He didn't care what others thought about him at all, which makes what we'll read today a little bit strange because in chapter 1 and into chapter 2 of Galatians, Paul seems to be bending over backwards to prove his credentials to the churches in Galatia to prove to him that he really is an apostle of of Jesus Christ. And so, as we read this this morning, you, you may ask, why is he so concerned about their opinions of him? Why does he worry about speaking to rumors and rampant speculation about him? Why does he care what they have to say about his past. Well, once again, Paul understood what was at stake. Paul understood that if his opponent, if his opponents could discredit him, then they could discredit his message. As we put it last week, they were making personal attacks to advance theological error. And so Paul in verses 11 through 24, gives us three reasons why he can be trusted as a source for the gospel. Look at verse 11. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I didn't receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. So first reason, Paul's teaching aligned with God's truth. One of the rumors floating around Galatia was that Paul took bits and pieces from the actual gospels that came from the apostles and then without their consent he twisted their message to fit his agenda. And so Paul will will unpack all the reasons that they're wrong in the rest of chapter 1 and into chapter 2 but in verses 11 and 12 He gives the foundation of his argument that the gospel that he preached is not man's gospel. He says, I didn't receive it from men. I wasn't taught it by men. I got it directly from the source. I heard it from Jesus Christ himself. Now, many of us just take this claim at face value. You know, we... In reading our Bibles, we've spent a lot of time with Paul, and and we trust him as a source for the gospel, and rightfully so. But we should recognize that Paul is not the first or last person to make a claim of divine revelation from God. So what sets Paul apart from the others, like Mohammed or, or Joseph Smith? Why should we trust Paul's message? Well, there's a couple reasons. One, Paul's gospel agrees with the Old Testament prophets. Remember in Matthew 5, Jesus said, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And on many occasions, the apostles used Christ's fulfillment of the Old Testament as their primary argument in the New Testament. In fact, one of their favorite proofs for defending Christ in the public square was the Old Testament. This is why they often say, As it is written, or these things were done to fulfill blank. And if you examine all of Paul's letters, you'll see him using that same strategy over and over again. By one scholar's count, Paul quotes or paraphrases 183 Old Testament passages in his New Testament writings. And that figure doesn't even include dozens of other references to people, places, and events in the Hebrew Bible. In the book of Romans alone, which is his most comprehensive description of the gospel, he quotes the Old Testament 84 times. So Paul agrees with the Old Testament prophets. And then two, Paul's gospel agrees with the New Testament apostles also, again, In chapter 1, at the start of chapter 1, Paul was mainly concerned with proving that he received the gospel of Christ from the person of Christ. But in chapter 2, he will show even though he didn't learn from the apostles, he agreed with the apostles. In verse 18, Paul mentions his first trip to Jerusalem where he spent a couple weeks with Peter, but in chapter 2, he speaks of another trip to Jerusalem. For a decade and a half after his conversion, Paul labored for the sake of the church without ever making a proper visit to the home church. And when he finally did, when he finally did that second trip, he met with Peter, James, and John. And he, he compared notes with the three men who, who made up the inner circle of Christ. And they were all on the same page. And if you don't want to take Paul's word for that, take Peter's word for it. Listen to what he says about Paul in Second Peter. <coughs> he says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters, when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable Twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Now, two things there. First, don't you find it a little bit encouraging to hear Peter say that some of Paul's writings are hard to understand? I know I do. That has given me so much comfort over the years when I read something that Paul says and say, I do what? Apparently, Peter shared in the struggle a bit. But secondly, and more importantly, Peter classified Paul's letters as Scripture. At the end of verse 16, he says, The enemies of the church try to twist Paul's words just like they do with the other Scriptures. So first, Paul's teaching clearly align with God's truth. Second, Paul's testimony highlights God's grace. And we see Paul's testimony in in several places in the New Testament, and he gets into it a little bit here. In, In verse 13, he says, For you've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it, and I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. Remember Luke introduced Paul who was Saul at that point for the first time in the New Testament at the end of Acts chapter 7. As the Sanhedrin gathered around Stephen and began crushing his body with stones, Luke adds a small footnote. It says the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then Luke ensures later in the chapter and and into the next couple chapters, that the reader doesn't mistake Saul as some sort of innocent bystander. Luke records that Saul approved of Stephen's execution. That Saul was ravaging the church. He was entering house after house and dragging men and women off to prison. Saul was breathing threats of murder against the disciples of the Lord. You know, if I told you I live and breathe Braves baseball, or I live and breathe golf. You you would understand, I'm extremely enthusiastic about both things. So when Luke says Saul was breathing threats and murder, he means Saul's singular obsession was destroying the church of Jesus Christ. It was his first thought every morning, it was his last thought every night. It was his favorite topic of conversation. It was his primary focus. And as he was traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus in Acts 9, he was planning on arresting as many Christians as possible upon arrival, but on the way, Christ intercepted him because God had other plans for him. After describing his lost condition in in verses 13 and 14, Paul makes a familiar transition in verse 15. But God. Paul was a sold-out Pharisee, but God. Paul was a violent persecutor of Christians, but God. Paul was a zealous destroyer of the church, but God. David Platt says in Scripture, the word but is a word of rescue. Consider how we use it to shift from good news to bad news in certain situations. You may say something like, I got in a car wreck, but no one was hurt. He fell out of the treehouse, but nothing was broken. She failed the midterm, but there will be extra credit. You have cancer, but it can be treated. This is what Paul's using the same device in verse 15, but when he, but when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace. In this verse, we see two divine elements which are necessary for true Christian conversion. First, conversion involves God's eternal planning. Paul says, He was set apart before he was born to become an apostle. Without going down the rabbit hole of discussing God's sovereignty and human freedom, Paul reminds us that if you're in Christ, you were set apart by God. You were chosen by God. You were loved by God before you took your first breath on earth. Psalm 139, King David says, For you formed my inward parts. Lord, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw, your eyes saw, My unformed substance in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me. And yet, there was none of them. So Paul was set apart before he was born. And then two, conversion involves God's gracious calling. Not only did God set Paul apart, he also called him by his grace. You know, Lacey and I have discovered that uh, a parenting cheat code is—we've uh, discovered that a parenting cheat code is giving our kids tablets and, and screen time from time to time. It's not revolutionary. It's not necessarily healthy. Uh, We limit screen time as best we can, but occasionally, for the sake of our sanity, we need a little bit of quiet. In the pre-tablet era, for example, our children would wake up every Saturday morning at 6 or 7 a.m., and they'd watch TV at the highest possible volume or invent a new game, which involved the highest possible risk of injury. And as a result, many, many Saturday mornings, our alarm clock, was either a Disney Channel theme song or a Screaming Child. But now, on Friday nights, we set out their tablets with a drink and a snack, and we usually get to sleep in till about 8 a.m. So tablets are great for surviving long car rides or doctor's visits with small children, but they do have concerning side effects. One of those being when our children get into the screen time zone for 30 or 45 minutes, we can struggle to pull them back into the real world. Sometimes we have to call them a few times before they move. Hey, breakfast is ready. No response. We're setting the table. Go wash your hands. Nothing. Seriously. It's Getting cold. Silence. My children are distracted. I can call them to come into the kitchen, but actually getting them to come into the kitchen is another story. Eventually, I may have to go into the other room and make them move towards the table. But church... When God calls his children, they answer. Because his word brings life. And when Jesus brought Lazarus out of the tomb, he didn't perform CPR. He didn't cover his corpse in magic pixie dust. No, he said, Lazarus, come out. When Jesus calmed the storm, he just said, be still. And that same resurrection power which moved Lazarus from death to life, that same power over the natural world that stopped a storm in his tracks, that power removed Paul's heart of stone and gave him a heart of flesh. He wasn't searching for God, he was an enemy of God, and yet God still called him by his grace. And he says in verse 15, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and, called, and who called me by His grace. Let's keep going. Verse 16. Was pleased to reveal His Son to me in order that I might preach Him among the Gentiles. I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, quick note, if you... Cross-reference, Paul's account in Galatians with Luke's account in Acts. You'll find his trip to Arabia is only mentioned here. In Acts 9, uh, Luke says that after his conversion, Paul's first order of business was proclaiming Christ in the synagogues of Damascus. But then here in Galatians 1, Paul says, After God revealed his son to me, I didn't consult with anyone, and I went out to Arabia before returning to Damascus. And so you may wonder why their accounts are slightly different. And I think the answer is their accounts are different because their purposes are different. In Acts, uh, Luke is giving a a 10,000 foot overview of the beginning of the church. But in Galatians, Paul's writing with a much more specific goal. Remember, Paul was arguing his gospel was not of human origin. So he mentioned his season in Arabia to make the point that his first sustained time of gospel reflection took place in the wilderness with Christ and not in the temple with the apostles. And a little side note there, don't miss the point that before starting a long run of ministry, Paul spent Three years strictly in preparation mode. It may seem like a foreign concept against the backdrop of our fast-paced culture, but sometimes there's immense value in prioritizing rest and reflection over activity and accomplishment. And sometimes we think we need to go and, and do all these things for God, when really we need to just go and be with God. Two weeks ago, I listened to a, a, a book on Audible called Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung. Ironically, I was too busy to sit down and, and read it, but I did find the time to listen to it, which counts for something. And If you're a, a type A, task-oriented, busybody like me, then I can't recommend this book to you enough. I could share 50 quotes with you, but I'll limit myself to a couple. DeYoung writes that we have to believe that the most significant opportunity before us every day is the opportunity to sit at the feet of Jesus. It's not wrong to be tired. It's not wrong to feel overwhelmed. It's not wrong to go through a season of complete chaos, but what is wrong and heartbreakingly foolish and wonderfully avoidable is to live a life with more craziness than we want because we have less Jesus than we need. For the Apostle Paul, those three years in Arabia, sitting at the feet of Jesus, prepared him for all the challenges of ministry which were in front of him. And so you can model that in your life. You start your day sitting at the feet of Jesus, reading His Word, spending time in prayer, and then you go out and and you are prepared for all the challenges that they may bring. All right, let's read the final verses of the chapter. Verse 18, And then after three years I went up to Jerusalem, to visit Peter and remain with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I'm writing to you before God, I don't lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Sicilia, and I was still unknown in person the churches in Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, He who persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God of me. So final point, Paul's transformation showcased God's grace. Because Saul's conversion was so sudden and shocking, many many critics over the last 2,000 years have offered a few explanations for it. Some say Saul was hallucinating, he had an uneasy conscience, he was fatigued from the journey, and his eyes were inflamed by the sun, as a result, he, he saw this this bright light, and he heard the voice of the risen Christ. It was all in his head. Others proposed it was a thunderstorm, or some kind of freak weather, that in the middle of this storm, he began to be overwhelmed with fear, and he imagined he saw Jesus, because he was so riddled with guilt. Another popular view is that Saul suffered from epilepsy. But none of these suggestions can fully explain the radical transformation which took place in Saul's heart. The truth is, as he and his crew were traveling to Damascus to kick down doors and round up Christ's followers, he was stopped in his tracks by a light from heaven which knocked him from his feet, a light that he would later describe as brighter than the sun. His worst fear became a reality. He was standing before the resurrected Christ who asked, Why are you persecuting me? And as he struggled, To process the moment, the only words he could mutter was, Who are you, Lord? And I imagine he probably knew the answer to his own question. But he was hoping he was wrong. But he wasn't. Christ confirmed his fear. I am Jesus. And you may wonder, why was the phrase, I am Jesus, so convicting for Saul. One minute, he wants to tear the church down brick by brick. The next minute, he wants to build the church up brick by brick. How could a simple introduction yield such radical change? But you must realize that Saul had a firm grip on the Christian gospel. He was a highly educated Old Testament theologian. He had heard Stephen's sermon. As a defender of Judaism, he was familiar with the basic tenets of the Jesus movement. He knew what they were proclaiming. That Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is the Savior who atoned for our sin on the cross, who overcame the grave, and who ascended to the right hand of the Father. So Paul had all the puzzle pieces, he had all the parts in his head, but up until that point it was heresy, it was lunacy, it was insanity, it was blasphemy. But everything changed with those three words. I am Jesus. I'm the one whom you're persecuting. Get up, go to the city, wait for my instructions. And so Paul went to Damascus and he sat blind for three days with no food or drink. And in those three days, he was completely humbled by God. He was helpless and dependent before God. for 72 hours, he sat under the weight of his sin against a holy God. He had devoted his adult life to discrediting followers of Jesus Christ. And suddenly, he realized he was playing for the wrong team. Verse 23, Paul referenced the specific rumor about him which was circulating around 1st century Jerusalem. They were saying, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And this is Paul's closing argument. Right? Apart from a personal encounter with the risen Christ, how can you explain his resurrection? What is the X factor that that motivated that 180 degree turn? Why would he switch from adversary to advocate? See, skeptics struggle with explaining the origins of Christianity. They can't adequately explain why Paul, who was a sworn enemy, and the other apostles, who were ordinary blue-collar workers, leveraged their entire lives for the sake of, of the gospel. All of them experienced persecution. All of them endured suffering. All of them lived in scarcity. All of them except John were brutally murdered. And yet none of them recanted. None of them said, "Yeah, we made it all up." You may remember the name uh, Chuck Colson. He was a former Marine Corps colonel who became one of President Nixon's, Richard Nixon's legal advisors. Some called him Nixon's hatchet man because he was willing to do things that no one else would do. So as you can probably imagine, he was a prominent figure in the Watergate scandal. And in 1973, as a result of the mounting pressure, he resigned from his position at the White House and he returned to private life, but he was plagued by, by the looming threat of prosecution. And it was at this critical juncture in his life that a friend put a copy of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity into his hands, which explores and defends the core beliefs of the Christian faith and ultimately that sparked a, a series of conversations and encounters which led to Chuck's conversion. And later, Colson would point to the apostles' unwavering commitment to the gospel as the final proof of the resurrection for him. You see, when the press broke the Watergate story, Colson and other members of the president's inner circle created a false narrative, and they swore that they would stand by it to the bitter end. That they would all tell the same story no matter what happened. But they didn't keep that promise. Colson said, Quote, Do you know how long it took for each of us to break? Under the threat of prison, we started pointing fingers at each other in less than a week. And we were marines. CIA agents, and other trained government officials. So you cannot convince me that a bunch of fishermen and blue-collar workers maintain their story unbroken to the end while each was tortured and executed. There is no way. Just consider Paul's sufferings. In 2 Corinthians, he gives a summary of everything he endured. in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. And so this is the key question that skeptics cannot answer. Why would Paul trade the comfort, influence, wealth, and power of Phariseism for the anxiety, persecution, scarcity, and weakness of Christianity? His radical transformation can only be explained by a personal encounter with the risen Christ. You know, throughout history, there have been other examples of of people seeking financial benefit or or consolidating power, gaining influence by pushing a, a false narrative. There are even examples of people suffering for a false narrative. But the point remains that no one will suffer willingly for anything that they know to be false. What could Paul have possibly gained from lying about the resurrection? says himself in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. And those who have fallen asleep in Christ have, have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are of all people most to be pitied. Church. Please don't miss the forest for the trees. The Christian faith hinges on one truth claim He is risen. That's it. If He is still in the tomb, then I've wasted my breath and you've wasted your time. But he's not in the tomb. We gather together every Sunday and we're going to come together like a multitude of other Christians around the world in a few weeks and celebrate Easter because praise God He's risen. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the, the testimony, uh, the teaching, and, and the transformation of, of Paul. Uh, thank you for the example that he is for us, and also just for the way that he consistently and constantly points us to the gospel. Not a gospel that came from man, but a gospel that came from you. A redemption story that only the God of heaven could write. So Father, we thank you for the cross. We know that if if Christ had not been raised, then my preaching is in vain, that our faith is in vain. But, Lord, we thank you that you robbed the grave. Lord, we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.